Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So this is our last episode focusing just on the Beatles music. And that's because in the spring of 1970, John Lennon had a single uh, Instant Karma hit uh, the top 10 and actually, I believe, top five in the UK. And uh, the Beatles had not released any music since for about six months-ish. George Harrison had released two solo albums and he was in the process of recording his third. John Lennon had released two successful singles prior to Instant Karma. So Instant Karma was his third hit. And he had been touring with his own band called the Plastic Ono Band. He had also released three really badly received experimental music albums with Yogo Ono prior to those singles. And Paul McCartney was in the process of recording his own solo album. So the band was essentially finished, even though they weren't finished publicly. But that didn't keep them from releasing music. So first up, we have one of the most famous songs, which was released as a single in uh march early march of uh 1970 uh on the 6th in the uk and on the 11th in the us we'll get to exactly how it's different in a second but here it is When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. That is, of course, Let It Be, arguably the most famous song from their final album and the title track from what would be sort of their final album. But it was released as a single officially by, with the blessing of at least the most important Beatle, if not all the Beatles at the time, which is Paul McCartney, um, given how, every, yeah, how everyone was involved. It is not the like roots raw studio version that was recorded for the the album that was supposed to be get back which we talked about last time and that you can see parts of in the peter jackson documentary it did actually have overdubs it was extensively overdubbed in um late i think late january 1969 and then again in april of 1969 and then early 1970 but unlike the phil specter overdubs for the let it be album these are much more subtle it's horns and cello and there's not a lot of it i think it's safe to say it's pretty famous <laughs> at this point yeah. you know everyone everyone's heard this song probably if you li- ever listen to classic rock radio anyway um or if you were alive in 1970 you have heard this song it is of course nothing like i said nothing like the like raw version uh that was recorded for get back but it is still sort of as nature intended in the sense of the beatles sort of uh intending John Lennon didn't really have anything to do with it, as far as we know, because he had really not been in the band for six months. And that might explain what happened later. And in fact, uh, one of, according to some people, uh, his, his part on Let It Be, on this version of Let It Be, was overdubbed out of existence. Because he, depending on who you talk to, he was uh, playing bass. And you, maybe the bass is played by one of Harrison's guitars. It's, it's, the memories are foggy. It is much like the last Beatles recording we talked about in, in the previous episode, I May Mine. It is sort of like it's it's sort of like Paul McCartney and George Harrison's version of what this should sound like and not really John Lennon's. But 
given that Lennon was like just AWOL, it, you can sort of regard it as the official Beatles version. And, you know, he hadn't, no one in the band hadn't broken up yet. So it seems like it's a reasonable assumption to say that. It is slightly different than the, uh, the version from the album, but we will get to that. So that brings us to the B-side, which is not notable, but why? Let's just play it anyway, because it is among the weirdest things they ever did. That is, you know my name, look up the number, the B-side to let it be. It was recorded in pieces over the course of nearly two years. It was begun during the sessions that produced Magical Mystery Tour and finished during the Abbey Road sessions. So it was actually recorded, uh, finished recording well before this single was released. It was just sitting around in the vault like a bunch of other stuff that they didn't release at the time. It is a comedy lounge number, I guess. <laughs> at one point, John yeah. Lennon wanted to release it as a double A-side with a song called What's the New Mary Jane, which was another comedy number that was recorded for the White Album, and you can hear on the anthology. And he, But he wanted to release it for the Plastic Ono Band, even though the Beatles created them, so that's weird. Anyway, and I, I assume Paul McCartney or someone said, you can't do that. We made those songs, not you. This version is heavily edited down from the original runtime of six minutes. It's only four minutes. I've always kind of liked it because it's like totally batshit crazy. And just like, you know, you can listen to a different version of it on Anthology 3, as well as, you know, with the new Mary Jane. It does show that occasionally they were just willing to have a lot of fun. I guess it's sort of a satire at parts of a bad lounge club act, but it is just bonkers. It features saxophone solo by Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, who recorded it before he died. It is just among the weirder things they ever did, but also fun in a way that most of the weird stuff they did wasn't, I would say. And it's really weird that they decided to put it on the B-side. I have no idea why that over any number of other unreleased songs that they had sitting around, including one we're about to talk about, which was much better. But I've always found it endearing as like the final thing they put out sort of, of quote-unquote new music, even though it was quite old at that point. So that brings us to their sort of last album, which was released two months after the single and titled Let It Be specifically because the single had come out and was a hit. So Get Back had been rejected three times and the Beatles had all started making their own records. And that's when their current manager, their new manager, the guy who replaced Brian Epstein, decided to make some money, possibly on the, acting on the behalf of George Harrison and John Lennon, possibly not. People are not really sure about this. He hired Phil Spector to remix Get Back. Oh, this is sometime in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this happened in April, I believe, of, uh, yeah, of April of 1970. So after the Let It Be single had come out, which makes sense why it was called Let It Be. And, uh, Alan Klein, you should note, was was a divisive person. He had been the Rolling Stones manager. Uh, I can't remember exactly. I think it was John Lennon who brought him on board. I think he was later revealed to have like siphoned off some money for himself. But not everyone liked him in the band, I mean. And so there is debate as to who supported his decision to hire Phil Spector. 
like I said, maybe it was Harrison and Lennon, maybe it was also Ringo Starr. There's a good reason for that, uh, which I will mention in a second. And there's all, but there's also, you know, there's chatter as well that neither of them were really consulted. He just did it. Uh, certainly Paul McCartney was not consulted, and uh, we will get to that. A few of the songs retain their origins as live in the studio songs without overdubs, but even the ones that are not obviously overdubbed with the orchestra and choir that Phil Spector added have studio chatter mixed in from other sessions. So, for example, the Get Back version that you hear on this album, as opposed to the single that came out the year before, has studio chatter from other things. So they, they, were, remake, they were all remixed, even if they weren't remixed with additional instrumentation. It's really hard to know what to do with this album because it caused Paul McCartney to quit the band and end the band. Like he, this, is the, this is the thing that caused Paul McCartney to issue the press release that said the Beatles were done. And of course, everyone blamed Paul McCartney for this at the time. I, when I was growing up, I thought Paul McCartney ended the Beatles because that's the, like, sort of the main story. But he was the only adult, apparently, in the room because everyone else had already quit. And uh, so even though this is the thing that caused him to end the band, you know, the band was over. So at least he had the courage to bear the brunt of that. It's worth noting the only Beatle to be involved in the Phil Spector sessions for the album was Ringo Starr. So you can say it's possible that Ringo Starr had, uh, gave his blessing to this. On the other hand, Ringo Starr was the most agreeable person in the band and always just did what was expected of him. So it's possible that he just thought that the Beatles wanted this done. Who knows? So we know Paul McCartney didn't like it, and he was the dominant Beatle at this point. We know some people claim John Lennon liked it. And apparently, in some interviews, John Lennon has admitted to liking some of it. But it also doesn't fit musically with anything John Lennon was doing at the time. If you listen to his uh, solo albums with Yoko Ono, or his debut solo album, or his hit singles, they do not sound like this. George Harrison likely approved because Phil Spector was the producer of his own solo album at the time. So if you want to blame anyone for this, we might want to blame George Harrison, weirdly. I'm not sure whether Phil Spector was hired for Let It Be first or All Things Was Passed first, but the fact is he produced both of them. And they were the overdubs for this were recorded at the same time as the sessions, some of the sessions for All Things Was Passed. And of course, Ringo Starr played on it. So there's the controversy. So then the question is, what do we do with this? Because it's, you know, I know the term is loaded, but you can call it a, an abortion of an album. Like it's not. It's certainly not what it was intended when they recorded the music. It is a Beatles album. It was released before the official breakup of the group, though it caused the official breakup of the group. <laughs> but it doesn't represent the intentions of the dominant songwriter of the group's like period. And it may or may not have represented the intention of the band's other main songwriter, since he wasn't in the band anymore. It also doesn't represent the intentions of the group's normal producer, George Martin. And it is a Beatles album that you could argue is curated by the two least significant Beatles in at least some sense. It was named, only named Let It Be, as I said, because the last single came out was Let It Be. It's basically a message that says, Dear Beatles fans, here's the album to follow up that single you were listening to recently. It is a supposed back-to-basics album that is filled with overdubs and editing, including an orchestra and choir. It is a contradiction. I'm not sure this completely invalidates it until the release of The Beatles Anthology 3 in 1996, and really until the release of Let It Be Naked in 2003. This was the only official version of the Get Back Sessions that anyone ever received, though there have been bootlegs. And so it's far from their intentions. It is still 
lets us hear at least some of what would have been absolutely innovative for the spring of 1969, the first ever Back to Basics rock album. Of course, the record has been set much straighter by Peter Jackson's documentary that came out in late 2021. But still, up until these these sort of correctives later, it is, you know, the the thing that lets us sort of envision what they were doing, which was complete supposedly completely renouncing everything that had been doing for the last, you know, since please please I me mean, basically. The first track is Two of Us. It's a folk rock song by Paul McCartney that really does fit the original concept of the abandoned album, which it only has mixed in studio chatter at the beginning to differentiate it from the version on Get Back. It's a little slower and softer than earlier versions that they practiced, but I I think it's a fairly uh, charming track. It changes meter as well. It has uneven phrasing and the standard Beatle tropes that they've been doing since the very beginning. I find it sort of feels like a help a help era song to me, but it's it's compelling. Then there's Dig a Pony, an impassioned love song by John Lennon with mostly nonsense words. He has repeatedly dismissed it in media as being garbage, but it does sort of prever- preserve the original feel of the project, even though it is actually, this version is shorter than the version that should have been recorded, released on an earlier version of Get Back. It is from the rooftop concert, the famous rooftop concert that you can, of course, now see in full in the Peter Jackson documentary. Alan Pollock has this to say. The tune makes broad and spicy gestures of contour. The verse starts off with a balanced arch that covers a full octave, but ends up with a second upward sweep of that arch left hanging in the air just begging for some release or relief from the refrain. The refrain allegedly picks up where the verse had left things and proceeds to blow the roof off in terms of range. The damn beat of the refrain momentarily establishes a new melodic high point just above where the verse tops out. But then in the second phrase, the two jumps up practically a full octave to the top out in falsetto on the C-sharp eight and a half steps above the middle C. So Pollock likes it a lot. I don't know if I like it as much as him, but this is the kind of like performance that actually discouraged the Beatles from following through with their intentions. I mean, certainly McCartney wanted to do it initially, but the rest of them sort of didn't love it. But I think it's, it's sort of an example of like how they were wrong here. It's, it works despite their feelings that it probably didn't. And certainly Pollock really thinks so, obviously. So then we have the weirdest thing here, uh, which is Across the Universe. It, of course, as we talked about last time, was recorded back in uh, early 1968, and it was manipulated for a charity album by adding sound effects. This version was then slowed back down to add an orchestra and a choir, and most of the original band or the backing vocals recorded by fans at the time are inaudible. This version, though, became a radio staple. Even though it was released as a single, it became a radio staple anyway. And this is the version that everyone knows, even though the song was old and was, you know, had been released already on a charity album. This is the one everyone's heard. 
John Lennon supposedly liked this version more than the charity version, which is one reason why there's a rumor he had something to do with hiring Phil Spector. I think Phil Spector didn't ruin this song, but also this song doesn't belong on this record, which kind of makes it really sort of weird that it's here. Yeah, I would agree that it's a bit of a weird one. Yeah. Shortest George Harrison song the Beatles ever released while they were together, I Me Mime, was was actually uh, expanded by Phil Spector. It was doubled in, nearly doubled in length and also given a full orchestra treatment. The song is apparently about ego. I've never really understood the lyrics. It was completed, as we talked about last episode, it was completed in early January 1970. It had nothing to do with Get Back Project. It was recorded basically a year later and fully in the, let, in the sorry, the Abbey Road mode where, um, you know, there are lots of overdubs. It's literally Harrison McCartney overdubbing stuff. I've never, like, hated the song musically, but again, it doesn't fit with the project. It was recorded separately from the project, and it's only here because presumably Phil Spector couldn't find enough other stuff he liked. And like I said, the actual song was not this long. Phil Spector literally just takes the chorus and repeats it. The next track is Dig It. It is one of the innumerable jams and song fragments they record during the sessions. Why they pick, why Spector picked this one over the others, I don't know. There were different versions of Dig It. The Beatles did mean to include a version of this song on previous versions of Get Back, so I guess Phil Spector was working off that. There was a version that's seven minutes long. They basically just changed the lyrics every single time. Apparently, one time, the lyrics were literally just John Lennon spouting off their catalog. This version was edited together from two different versions by Phil Spector. Nobody knows why. It's just here. It's filler. All right. So, now we have to ask a question about this. Yeah. As maybe not someone who's as dedicated as a Beatles fan looking in. Yeah. With all of this overwrought, overworking of songs. Yeah. Would you say that was probably like a net benefit or a net harm to their musicality overall? It definitely seems a little bit more um, chaotic. Maybe that's not the right word. Yeah. I think so. But like it, it does not seem as cohesive. Yeah. I don't think yeah. that was necessarily a bad thing. I personally would have preferred if they just released Get Back, like, you know, in the spring of 1969, whatever version they wanted to, as a sort of warts and all thing. I think it would have been really shocking to the musical world at the time and had more impact. But also, I think, like, there's enough on there. We're going to get to basically my favorite, my favorite track in a moment. I think there's some stuff on here that's good. And I think especially from watching the Peter Jackson documentary, there was plenty of stuff they could have used. They just didn't get along. <laughs> and, and I think that Phil Spector didn't really add much. There's, like I said, I, I don't think what he did to Across the Universe is particularly bad. I guess what he did to I Me Man, Mine is, is fine, but both of those things weren't even part of the project. And like the things that he did to other parts uh, you know, he he left two of us untouched. Great. Dig a Pony, he mostly left untouched. He fiddled with it a little bit. It sounds fine. But some of the other stuff, as we will get to shortly, especially the most notorious thing, is, uh, you know, I don't think it added anything. And moreover, it sabotaged the whole point of the thing. And whether or not the Beatles, I think in, is the Beatles screwed up here by not releasing a version 
of the original intended album because I think that it would have worked despite it being raw. Like that was their big thing is they were afraid of like, you know, being judged for, you know, not being immaculate anymore. But that was the whole reason they did in the first place. You know, it's like they lost the courage of their convictions partway through. And what's interesting, I guess, like maybe not interesting is not the right way to say it, but what's interesting now is there's a whole lot more desire to appear natural with some, with some musicians yeah, like that raw yeah, untouched blemishes warts and all just seems to be for some people very vogue yeah and what you yeah. want to see out of an album and the thing is if they had done that immediately after the white album i think it would probably hold up among among their best work just because of how out there that would have been but also because there are some great songs on it it's not like there aren't it's just that like yeah. there aren't as many and certainly in the versions, you know, some of the versions we've heard are sort of just like, you know, they're mani- they've been manipulated in a way that like, you know, the sort of freshness and like, you know, like you said, the authenticity, but also the sort of the fun that they were actually having, despite the original Let It Be film suggesting otherwise, would have been palpable. And, you know, that one thing you can say about the White Album, which is my favorite Beatles album, is there's not a lot of fun on it, you know? I don't know. I, I I think Phil Spector and whoever hired him, whether it was just Alan Klein or whether it was Lennon and Harrison or just Harrison or whoever, I think they deserve a lot of blame for this. And I do think their legacy, not their legacy isn't harmed by it, but like their legacy would even be better if they just actually released a version of Get Back in 1969 or even in early 1970 before this happened. But anyway. So the album version of Let It Be features, uh, is different than the single, though it's sometimes hard to tell unless you listen to them back to back. George Harrison recorded an original guitar solo in the recording session, obviously, but then he released or recorded a second guitar solo when they were um, thinking of releasing a single. And uh, this, this is uh, the actual original guitar solo. However, what it does feature instead is instead of George Martin's really subtle arrangement, uh, orchestral arrangement, it features a much heavier Phil Spector arrangement. I would say it doesn't necessarily harm Let It Be. I think Let It Be is justly famous as a song. But, you know, if you'd heard the single version first, which you would have if you were a fan, 1970, you were probably like, wait, is this orchestra louder? And is there a choir? Where did the choir come from? Because, of course, there wasn't a choir on the single. So. Maggie May was the first quote-unquote cover to appear on a Beatles album years. It was a joke and one of innumerable covers they chose to use to warm up during the sessions. Other versions of Get Back track listings that I've seen included other covers that they attempted more seriously. So once again, Phil Spector is doing something weird that no one understands why, because, you know, it's, it's sort of like there are better covers in the many, many hours of sessions. On the other hand, the Beatles did include Maggie May, a version of Maggie May, in one of the planned releases of Get Back in a different part of the album sequence. So once again, maybe Phil Spector was just looking at an old track listing and be like, sure. And then he just chose this one instead of another one. Who knows? Nobody knows anymore. But it is, once again, basically filler. For me, possibly the highlight of the whole album, certainly one of the highlights of the album is I've Got a Feeling, 
It combines parts of two separate uh, songs, one by Paul McCartney, one by John Lennon, which was a normal thing they've been doing for years at this point, but it's better for it. It's actually the first time the two had combined song fragments to create a new song like this since Baby, You're a Rich Man in the summer of 1967, rather than combining whole songs with fragments, which they had done on both The Beatles, and, or aka The White Album and Abbey Road. This particular version of it is from the rooftop performance. And so once again, it's, it's mostly part of the original concept of, you know, raw live in the studio. They were actually live outside. To me, I would say if you, uh, you know, as you were just sort of alluding at Dave, if you're any, like, if you're worried about, like, whether or not they could still, if the Beatles were worried about whether or not they could still put on a show, and if people were sort of skeptical of their ability to function not as a studio band, I would say this song really sort of captures their ability to still function despite a few years not performing in front of a live audience and being able to change whatever uh, they wanted. So we'll just play a little bit of it. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh yeah. So that's, yeah, this is my favorite song on the album. And uh, I just think it's a, a very good demonstration of the project at its best. And I'm glad Phil Spector didn't really touch it because it would have been a shame if he had like some of the other shit he did. And I do wish they'd released a whole album of stuff like this, even if not everything is as good as that. The next track is One After 909, which is actually a song from the earliest days. They were actually thinking of including it on With the Beatles, their second album, even though they'd written it some in like 1957, but they didn't record it back then, or they did record it, they didn't release it rather. And during the sessions for Get Back, they were doing their own oldies as well as those of others. And this was their attempt to, in the 50s to write a train song back when train songs were popular. The recording, this one is another uh, track from the Rooftop Concert. It's certainly way louder and rawer than what they attempted in 1963 for with the Beatles or in 1960 for that matter. But it does give you a sense of the kind of problems that were occurring in the band. You know, Paul McCartney came up with the idea. He also brought in most of the new material. John Lennon barely contributed any new material. And of the stuff that he and Harrison uh, contributed, most of the band, of course, couldn't quite agree on. Uh, though the Peter Jackson documentary said shed some light on this, that maybe it was it was more about how to perform it rather than whether or not to perform it, which is I think the reputation has been more like they couldn't they didn't necessarily like the songs, and I think the Peter Jackson documentary does a good job of showing it was more they couldn't agree exactly on how to present it. Still, I think if you listen to the anthology uh, one version of One After Nine and Nine, it's really easy to see how much better. They are as a band with this one. And actually, uh, Hooked on Pop does a great little bit about 
this record and specifically the long and winding road, which is the next track. And one of the things they do is they briefly play the two versions of one after 909. So you don't even have to go that far. You don't even have to go find the tracks. You can just look up that hooked on pop episode and hear, and even like my girlfriend and I were listening to it. And as they played it, she was like, wow, <laughs> just like the snippet. She was just like, Whoa, that's a big difference. And I was like, yeah, they really did improve. So the most controversial track on the album and the one that caused Paul McCartney to end the band is The Long and Winding Road. The long and winding road that leads to your door will never disappear I've seen that road it has the most glaring intervention from Phil Spector along with I Mean Mine. It has a huge orchestra, choir, and effects. Paul McCartney listened to this and he thought Phil Spector destroyed his song. If you think the song is sappy or not, you should listen to either the Let It Be Naked version or the anthology version because they don't have this shit. You can tell that maybe it's not quite as sappy just because it lacks the orchestra and choir. This is supposedly uh, Paul McCartney's attempt to write a Ray Charles pop ballad because Ray Charles had been doing those things for a little while. Regardless, it's really sort of hard for a lot of us to hear it without the crap that Phil Spector put on it, but you can go out and find it, and it is definitely an improvement. Uh, again, ho- uh, Switched on Pop, I think I called them Hooked on Pop before, Switched on Pop has a great episode that focuses mostly on the long and winding road and the changes. And they will actually play parts of both versions, many versions for you. And you can sort of hear like how aggressive Phil Spector's changes are, um, which may not, you know, depending on how active a listener you are, they may not appear as obvious to you. But when you listen to that episode of their podcast, you'll, you'll really be like, Oh Jesus, this is crazy. Next is for you. Blue. George Harrison's attempt to write a traditional blues song with not very bluesy lyrics. It features John Lennon's debut on the lap steel guitar, which is, if you don't know what a lap steel is, a steel guitar that is played on the lap, shockingly. But basically, it is a solid body. It's it's just the strings. There's nothing else. And it's amplified. And John Lennon, you would have guessed Paul, uh, it was George Harrison playing it, but it, weirdly, John Lennon plays it. The song is mostly how it should be. Harrison apparently re-recorded his vocal well before Phil Spector was involved, and that was what was used. And, and the vocal chatter was added. But otherwise, it doesn't feature an orchestra or anything like this. And, you know, the rest of the recording is what it was supposed to be. And it's another, you know, decent uh, evidence of what they were doing well during the initial sessions. Uh, The album version of Get Back features all sorts of dialogue that was not recorded at the time. It was just mixed in from other sessions. Otherwise, it is basically the same as the single that was released a year earlier, just a remix of that single. So honestly, you can take it or leave it, but you can also wonder, like, why he left it alone when he created a new version of Let It Be. You can also wonder why he included it rather than some other song in the recording, since there were hundreds of them. I don't know. Nobody knows, I think. Anyway, I think 
Let It Be is the first thing the Beatles had released in ages, except Yellow Submarine and the Magical Mystery Tour movie that can be really criticized by the standards of the time and can be considered inessential in terms of rock music history. I think Get Back, would, as I said before, I think Get Back would have stood up pretty well. Some version of Get Back had it come out before Abbey Road, but it didn't. And so I think you can sort of look at this a bit as the group's Nadir, but I mean, you could also look at Magical Mystery Tour as the group's Nadir. Of course, this is excluding Yellow Submarine because that's not really an album. But for Nadir, uh, Nadir rather, it's uh, still got some pretty good stuff and contribute a couple of radio staples you know, a couple I mean, of their biggest hits. <clears throat> I think there's there's a lot of bands that would be pretty happy if this was their editor. Yes. Honestly. Yes. So, Absolutely. Far, In fact, did you read my book? Because I think go. I say that. Yeah, I mean, I know I actually didn't read your Beatles book. I was, um, I'm coming into this one completely blind. But I mean, like, yeah, like as, as far as editors go, this one's, for low point, it's pretty high. Yeah, I, I would say so. So that's, you know, says something about them. So the Beatles went all, all went on to successful solo careers, and they regularly played together in various versions of two or three. Notably, Lennon and McCartney, I don't believe, ever played together again after Abbey Road. But iterations of the other three, you know, Lennon with Harrison and Starr, McCartney with Harrison and Starr, yeah. etc., did uh, play together as guest appearances, basically. But I can't for a second claim any kind of authority over their solo careers like I do with the Beatles. I've listened to the 13 Beatles albums and the two past masters singles collections more times than I can count. But I have heard only, when I published the book, I'd only heard four or five of the post-Beatles solo albums. I've heard many more now. I've heard many of McCartney's and a few of John Lennon's and more than I want to of George Harris. <laughs> um, <laughs> though never any of Ringo Starr's, shockingly enough. So... What I'm about to say briefly about their careers that you can take with a grain of salt, because honestly, I have not spent a lot of time on them. So briefly to talk about George Harrison's career, um, in some ways, he already had the most solo experience when he went solo because he had released a soundtrack album and an album of electronic music when he was still in the band. His first proper album of songs was a ridiculous triple album, though in the CD era, it was only a double album. And... uh for a while, I, I sort of decided that it was what the critics said it was, which is Harrison breaking out from under the you know shadow of John, John and Paul McCartney. It contained, you know, the first ever post Beatles hit by a Beatle, uh, number one hit rather, My Sweet Lord. But All Things Must Pass, his debut album, is much more of a mess and far less fun than say the White Album, partially because it ends with jam after jam after jam. The sequencing is really awful. The person likely responsible for that sequencing disaster is Phil Spector. I mean, I would say that like All Things Must Pass, which is considered George Harrison's best album, is not great. After that, he released album after album of fairly insignificant middle-of-the-road stuff and had a bunch of decent hit singles in the 70s, as well as organizing the concert for uh, Bangladesh. And then he sort of faded out of the view until he recorded a cover in Oldie and had a massive hit in the late 80s. And he became one of the artists to go longest between number one hits, something like 16 years. And then... He formed the Traveling Wilburys with uh, Bob Dylan, among other people, and had some hits then as well, a brief resuscitation to his career. What's really notable about George Harrison is his contribution to the film world. He helped bring us Monty Python movies. Yes, he did. And I mean, I will be eternally grateful to him until I die. Um, he also, uh, he also uh, financed a bunch of uh, independent film, other independent films 
and was did he of, um did he continue to finance Monty Python Afterlife of Brian? I did don't you know? know. I I I don't know about that. I just know his uh his handmade film like, company was like involved in a number yeah, of like, independent film projects in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, like like I don't think Life of Brian would have existed without his yeah uh, backing. I just yeah. don't know how much he continued on after like i'm sure he continued on to back him i just don't know if he would be like a central backer if that makes sense yeah i mean i don't know um how involved he was beyond financially yeah but uh i know handmade films had a i haven't looked it up in ages but um yeah so life of brian uh time bandits so post muddy python stuff and hollywood bowl yeah Uh, you know they they produced long good friday a legendary British crime film, film uh, Tattoo, Venom, The Burning. I think I've seen the... Oh, it's a different Burning. Oh, no, I've seen The Burning, a slasher film, a crazy slasher film, which is a lot of fun. I like it. You know, a lot, a lot of films yeah. up through, uh, throughout the 80s. And then, uh, weirdly, they also were involved in Nuns on the Run, which I saw many years ago. Really? Um Yeah, but <laughs> they still exist. They Sorry, yeah. they were producing films up until 2010, and then I guess they must have folded anyway uh, yeah um that's so, so that's something he did and uh it's great that he did it so uh hot take i my opinion is that john lennon is the only Beatle to release any kind of masterpiece after leaving the beatles and it was literally when he did um i believe that plastic Odo man his version not yoko ono's is uh one of the great singer songwriter records in the 1970s and uh, it is of course from 1970 and yeah, I, I think that's eh, some people might think that's a hot take, but I, I stand by it. I think it holds up. I'm much less impressed with the rest of his career, partly because he really can't decide what he wants to do. A lot, the, a lot of his solo albums I've heard vacillate between the plastic owner of band Rawness and stuff that has a lot more in common with what Phil Spector did to Let It Be. He also, of course, has like a covers album and, you know. But the thing is, and this is always controversial when you talk about it but the thing is he died relatively young when he was assassinated and so some people look with more fondness on his career than i think on paul mccartney's mm-hmm. or george harrison's because he died younger and you know they imagine much more stuff that would be great up to the standards you know like that album that came out right after he died that he and yoko Ono put out right after he died or right around when he died which like i don't think a lot of people love but like people look really fondly on it because it came out right then, you know? And yeah, that sounds sort of cynical, but like, honestly, I, I think he, he, his career is like, like the rest of them is, is kind of flawed. And I would say that like, really, if you, if you have to listen to one post Beatles album by a Beatles, it's plastic on a band. But like, I do think that it's sort of, everything else is a bit of a mess. Of Can course. I put you on a spot for another hot take? Sure which probably isn't going to be that much of a hot take from you. Would you say Phil Spector was an overall good or an overall harm for the Beatles? Do you mean for their like solo careers or their career as a whole? Career as a whole. Not necessarily solo careers, but do yeah, you think, I, like, like, would you say that Phil Spector, given some of the, some of the actions and some of the songs and blah, 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 would you say net good or net negative? I think probably a bit of a net negative, but like not financially. <laughs> So maybe artistically a net negative. Artistically, like, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it is weird to be that both Lennon and Harrison worked with him afterwards. And that's why some people suspect that they were both said it was all right. 
but like, I don't know. I just don't think he added anything, you know, they didn't need him and he didn't really, he didn't add much that was good anyway. You know, he just did his thing. He tried to do his thing. He tried to turn some of their music into his like mid sixties pop. And I was just like, who cares? Like, it's not what they are anyway. So Paul McCartney had the most successful solo career. Obviously, he is the most successful uh, musician in the history of the world. I mean, I don't know if he, he will probably be eclipsed at some point, but between the Beatles and his solo career, he has sold more records than anybody ever. He was obviously the best singer in the band. He also had the biggest knack for melody. You could argue he wrote most more of their hits than John Lennon did over the course of their career. So it shouldn't be shocking that he has done this well. For me, the only thing I really like Another hot take from the rest of his career. Uh, there's a couple songs. The, the most notable one is maybe I'm Amazed, which is from like his debut album. I've listened to a bunch of his albums now, including some with Wings. And most of the time, what I hear is like sub Beatles and a guy who really desperately needs his old creative foil to like rein him in. You know, Paul McCartney mm-hmm. loves like a catchy nonsense melody. Um, he loves making up lyrics that don't make any sense. He loves stitching things together in a way that like he did on the end of Abbey Road. But like, he's just doing that again. And, you know, it's not like he hasn't written some classic songs. There, there are songs that people absolutely love that he's, he's written post-Beatles, but I just, they don't really do a lot for me. He has tried to do some more interesting things. You know, he tries to stay relevant. He, he did try to record his own uh, oratorio but he also has experimented with production techniques you know he has an auto-tune album apparently it's not like he's been boring but i've just yeah. never really like i said i think maybe i Maze is a great song i think let me roll it's pretty good there's a few others but for the most part i listen to his stuff and i'm like man you need an editor <laughs> and you need someone else who's going to stand up to you and say not every idea that came out of your head is great and unfortunately when the beatles ended I think he lost that a little bit. Uh, certainly Wings was, you know, a dictatorship, right? He just told them what to do. And the thing about the Beatles is that they fought back and, yeah. you know, and had other ideas. And I think that that's, for me anyway, that's what he needs in his career. And he hasn't really had it. But also he's released so many damn albums. I've heard like seven of them, you know? <laughs> There's probably some I've heard that I would actually really like because he's got like 40 or so. I don't know if it's 40, but he's got a lot. And I just... You know, the ones I've heard, which are all from the 70s, I should point out. I just never loved. But I can't deny he is extremely tuneful. That man has come up with more melodies, it seems, than just about anybody else ever. Lastly, Ringo Starr had a surprising amount of Beatles success, including a couple of huge hits in the 70s, which suggests to you that, or suggests to me anyway, that people have terrible taste in music. And some of them were covers. The biggest impact he had on me was narrating Thomas the Tank Engine and Shining Time Station. Uh, <laughs> that's what I remember. That's actually my first introduction to the Beatles was probably that, was uh, Thomas the Tank Engine and Shining Time Station. But, you know, he's the drummer. And uh, his career post-Beatles has been fronting his all-star band that does his hits and a whole bunch of covers and makes boomers very happy, but otherwise doesn't do anything for anybody. And so I think you can just leave it at that. So just a couple words about their other releases post-breakup. 
1987, they released a A-side and B-side compilation called Past Masters, which I've referred to many times. That meant that if you went out and bought all the CD versions back then of the British albums and the American version of Magical Mystery Tour, plus those two records, you could have everything the Beatles ever released. This is all moot now because of streaming. But if you do actually want to hear how they change music chronologically, you do need to sort of swoop in and get the singles from Past Masters in addition to the albums because the singles are not on the albums and would not be unless someone has created a special playlist. Another way you can, of course, see their impact is to listen to the Red and Blue albums released in 1973, which were the my introduction to the Beatles' career arc. And those albums are a greatest hits collection that do a pretty damn good job of showing how they change music because it includes singles and key album tracks. And you don't have to listen to everything. But those were double cassettes, double, you know, when they were released, double LPs. Yeah. And so there's four, there would have been four cassettes or four, well, four LPs and then four cassettes and then later four CDs. So it's still a bit of a slog, but um, it gives you a pretty good idea if you don't want to go through everything. In 1994, they released something called Live at the BBC, which collects many of their radio and TV performances. It, it shows them in the early stages before Beatlemania and then in Beatlemania. And it's really for fans only. And I would say, unless you're really interested in hearing what they sounded like in their very earliest days and live, it really doesn't do much for you. And the closer it gets to the end of the era it covers, the more screaming girls there are and the less music. So keep that in mind. And then in 1995, they released a six-disc archival collection of their of a bunch of demos and outtakes and live performances not included in the BBC collection called Anthology. I think it's a bit of a landmark in uh, uh, rock rarities collections, and not in jazz. Jazz had been doing this for years, but it had not been a thing in rock yet, really, to do this. Now, it's notable it's also missing Carnival of Light, their most notorious song that hasn't been released, that apparently will never be released. But it does contain a lot of other stuff. The first volume is the weakest because it contains lots of material with Screaming Girls, whereas the second features their most interesting music and the way it shows them really evolving in the studio and changing stuff. And the final edition gives you some idea of what happened in 1969, helps sort out the Get Back, Abbey Road, Let It Be thing. Though, of course, now there's the full version of Let It Be to sort that out. And there's the Peter Jackson documentary. Notably also, though, the anthology featured two new Beatles songs which I guess we got to talk about because they released the singles and they are in some ways technically Beatles songs. They use the wonders of recording technology to take John Lennon demos and expand them into full songs. They did it twice. One came out in December 1995 and the other came out in October 1996. Those songs are free as a bird. Whatever happened to Love. Freeze Bird is credited to 
everybody because they really, really expanded it. So John Lennon wrote a fairly simple song and then Paul McCartney with help from George Harrison and I guess supposedly Ringo Starr expanded that song. And in the second case, Real Love, they just, they just added stuff. So I'm biased, but I honestly like what they did here. I think it could have been really bad. It could have been really horrible. And they could have done so many things that didn't work. And instead, they found these two unreleased demos and they created songs that like Free as a Bird was actually a bit of a hit, which is weird. I think Free of the Bird is more ambitious and less successful. Probably Paul McCartney adds stuff that maybe John Lennon wouldn't have approved of. Real Love, on the other hand, they did just play, they just added instruments basically and sped it up the recording. And it really does feel more like a, a John Lennon song. But like to me, it's it's sort of them, their last gasp was showing like how creative they were. The fact that they were able to do this at a time then it was still not that common to do these kinds of things. You know, now taking some old found recording in the rock world, of course, it was common in electronica at the time, but in the rock world, taking an old discovered recording and, and building around it or incorporating that into your, your new piece was in the mid 90s, not a thing really people were doing. Now it's much more common, of course, because we've gone through the mashup phase and all, all sorts of other shit. But like, I still think it's like tasteful in a way. I was really surprised at how tasteful it was. Honestly, I think both of them are sort of like, maybe it's just because I was really worried about it, but I listened to both of them and I think, oh, okay, I'm not offended by this, you know? Especially Real Love, which just feels to me like they just took John Lennon's song and like, you know, made it mm. sound like a real song rather than a demo recording and is recorded in his apartment. Whereas Free as a Bird is absolutely like them attempting to like turn it into a full on Beatles song. And that maybe works a little less well, but honestly, I don't know. I don't mind. And that was the last thing they ever did. And so that's that. <laughs> 